Well, today we're going to think about the seriousness of sin, which might, uh, in its first uh, first blush, that might appear a very, very negative thing to be talking about. But we've got it there before us, as so often in the prophets here in, in Amos 2, for three transgressions of whoever, Moab or Israel or Judah, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now, it's very hard to sort out what exactly is, is being intended there, this three or four, all I can uh, suggest is that what God is saying is, even if you, you think that after a certain point of sin, I'm not sensitive to it anymore, well, you're wrong. I am very sensitive to sin. And I think that that is something that we really need to perceive and appreciate, that God is sensitive to human sin, extremely sensitive, in fact, to, to human sin. And he's talked there in chapter 1 about all these pagan nations, and then... Uh, he comes right on to Israel and, and Judah, that they also have sinned, which maybe would have been hard for them to take. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that Amos is prophesying at the time of Isaiah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. And 2 Chronicles 26 talks about Isaiah, and you would not get the impression that he was a particularly bad guy. And you could argue that it, Judah was not in a particularly bad situation at the time. But I think Amos's point is, no, actually you are very sinful and judgment is going to come and I will not turn away that judgment. And don't think that because you've done a, a bit of sin, three transgressions, that actually I don't feel that the next four, three plus four equals seven, the, the, the number of, of completion. I think God's saying your, your sin is, as it were, complete in my eyes, therefore I'm going to judge you. But don't think that after the third sin I kind of uh, looked away, looked the other way. Later on in the chapter, there's a very uh, powerful figure in, in verse 13. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. It's as if God is saying, look, I really am sensitive to sin to the point that you are on top of me. Now, considering that human beings are compared to God like little ants, that's amazing that we should be on top of God. And why does he use that strange figure? I think it's to show us that he is sensitive to sin, that sin really hurts him. And he does not turn off, as it were, after a certain number of sins, as we maybe do if someone is sinning against us. We walk away, we, we turn away after a certain point. Now, <clears throat> this isn't negative, as I say, because we've all, I think, felt at times that why don't I have more spiritual energy? Why don't I have a flame of, of praise, of, of zeal, of gratitude towards God? <coughs> why? <coughs> why not? Um, why do I not have a true humility? Why am I a bit arrogant and a bit up myself at times? Why am I like this? And I think the answer to that is we don't realize the sense of our sin. If we felt how serious sin is and we therefore believed in God's forgiveness, the wonder of that, that, wow, I have been forgiven, would give us a huge burst of energy. And so he says in verse 4 that, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord. Now, as I say, reading 2 Chronicles 26, uh, about the time that Amos was prophesying, you would not get that impression. And they certainly would have said, no, we're not despising the Lord of the Lord, we're keeping his law, but we're doing something else. And, well, you know, we're all, hum <coughs> we're all human, etc. But they despised the Lord of the Lord, and that was how God saw it, even though it was not 
how they saw it. And why did they do this? Because their lies or their idols caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. So then they thought that, well, yeah, I'm worshipping God, but okay, my weaknesses that I have, well, my fathers had those weaknesses. The way is set. I'm just following what people today would say, yeah, well, that's sort of what I was born into. That's my, my background. That's what I came from. My uh, genetic structure is to that uh, is just like that. And so that's the way that I have to walk. But this idea of walking after your fathers, it's kind of commented on, I think, later on in this chapter, in verse 10, where God reminds them that he had led them 40 years in the wilderness. God led them. The angel led them for 40 years. And now he's saying, but you're walking after your fathers. So this break with tradition, which is so hard for all of us, this break with our background, God is inspiring them to do better by saying that your fathers, uh, you're walking after your father's traditions, but actually I am leading you, I want to lead you through my angel into a better way. Now, it's common these days to say, yeah, we're all on a journey. We're all traveling, yep, I'm on a journey. As if the fact we're on a spiritual journey some, somehow kind of justifies us. Well, everyone is on a journey. We're all getting older. Uh, we're all moving on. But the fact that there's some sense of movement spiritually in us does not mean that we're right. Because the question is, who's leading you? Are you just actually following the way you were brought up? the traditions of your fathers, or are you following the way that God is leading you, that sort of angelically led way? So he, he goes on, um, <coughs> uh, sorry, uh, back on that thing about following your fathers. It seems to me that we sin very often because of other people, because of following the examples that we get from other people. Isaiah 53 verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. So why do we sin? How do we sin? We sin like sheep because we are influenced by other people. And uh, this is the, the radical call of the gospel to, to break us away from all those influences, those spiritual ties that bind that are upon us. And there's this wonderful doctrine in the New Testament of the new creation. And that is a ladder to reach the stars. It really is that it's no good saying, well, I'm like I am because I am as I am, and I was born this way, and the, uh, the die was cast, the way was set. No, there is, throughout the, the Bible, and we've got it here in, in Amos, uh, the, the idea of a new start, of a new being, being created in Christ. And so he, he says, verse 6, You've sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Now, that word righteous, it can imply a, a legally declared righteousness, as if he could be referring to the way that justice was so corrupt that uh, the righteous didn't get uh, their justice because of a bribe of silver. And just for a pair of shoes, for something completely petty, the justice of the poor was also perverted. Now... And another option is to, is to focus on the word sold. They sold the righteous. Now, the Israel were not supposed to sell each other into slavery, but it could well be that that's what they were doing. That just for a minor debt, a pair of, sh of shoes, a pair of sandals, somebody was sold into slavery just for that minor debt. And I maybe prefer maybe that interpretation, because I think the Lord may have quoted his teaching about uh, the, the man who has the small debt who the other man 
throws into jail until he pays that debt um, fr from this kind, of, this kind of Old Testament passage. Now, what does that mean to us? We have people in our debt, and we may think that, uh, no, I don't, but we do, because people sin against us. We have them in our debt. And are we going to say, pay me what you owe me? If we're going to insist that people repent and get right with us before we're going to resume a relationship with them, then we are really putting them in a position where they can't pay us. That was the bizarre thing, uh, that the guy threw the other guy into prison for the small debt. Well, if he's, if he's in prison, he can never actually work to repay the debt. And so the whole point is, I think, that we are to forgive each other without necessarily demanding repentance. Now, of course, you can say, no, no, you've got to repent, then I'll forgive you. And I, my comment on that would be, well, that's fine, if that's how you see it. But as we, will as we judge, we will be judged. And, you know, David in Psalm 19 asks to be forgiven for secret sins, and we all have that request of God to forgive us for the sins that we do that we don't even realize that we do. That's, I think, important, to, to realize that we are going to need his forgiveness for that which we have not repented of. So then, going on in, in verse 7, we, we come to a, a very awful statement that a man and his father will go in unto the same maid. And I think this, this must be referring to their idol worship that a man and his father went in under the same sort of temple prostitute to profane my holy name. Now, the Russian Bible has a word there, that, that is to literally to take away the glory from my name. Now, the idea of the glory and the name are very common in the scriptures, and these two words often occur together, but there is a difference between the glory of God and his name. We are to give glory to his name. Now, when God declared his name to Moses, it was really a list of his characteristics. Now, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God full of grace, justice, integrity, forgiving sin, not clearing the guilty, etc., patience. His name is his character, and we give glory to that name in our behavior. Now, you know as well as I do that we were baptized into God's name, uh, the, the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus God's name. It's the same idea that we're baptized into his name. And when people do bad things to us, as James says, they despise that worthy name that is called upon us. But we also have got to live as the, the bearers of that name, and that is the giving of glory to God. So by this kind of behavior, that a man and his father will go in under the same maid, they profane, they take the glory away from God's name. That's how awful sin is. And we are 24-7 God's representatives on this earth. And we are carrying his name. Verse 8, I think, uh, leads right on from that. And they lay themselves down, and I think that's talking about, uh, well, to put it crudely, sex. They lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by, by the altars. So... The man and his father go in under the same same temple prostitute next to the altar, the, the pagan altars, um, laying themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge. 
Now this is right out of Deuteronomy 24 verses 12 and 13 where we're told that if somebody owed you something uh, and you, you took their garment for a pledge you weren't to keep it overnight you were to give it back to them at night and that also you were not to go into their house to demand your, your money back now those sort of commands are indicative of the way that God asks us to respect the value of the human person that we are not to shame a person that even for those who are in our debt be it literally or morally that they have sinned against us we are not to as it were rub it in their faces and we are to still treat them with humanity to recognize that they also are people made in God's image so then these clothes they had that they threw down by the altar and, and lay with these prostitutes on those clothes he says well actually they were clothes that you'd taken from some poor person and that's uh, the link back to verse 6 that you sell the poor for a pair of shoes that uh, it was Amos's burden as it were to criticize the way they were treating poor people so then there's a, a juxtaposition here of what appears to be a major sin well what is a major sin a man and his father go into the same maid by the altar and what would appear to be a minor sin that is that you're keeping the pledge the, the garment of the, the poor man who's given it to you as a pledge but you didn't give it back to him that night you took it with you and you lay down upon it uh, and slept with the, the, the cult prostitutes on that garment and this comes back to the theme that's here of the seriousness of sin but the huge sin what apparently seems a huge sin that's sleeping with a temple prostitute and a bit of insensitivity to a poor man who's in your debt are put together, they're juxtaposed, they're put next to each other to show that they're both equally bad. It's like the way Paul writes to the Corinthians and says that you've got uh, division. He starts off by saying you divide it. And then he, he talks about things like you're getting drunk at the breaking of bread. Uh, there also seem to be uh, prostitution, uh, sexual immorality going on actually at the at the uh, Christian services that they were doing. They'd mixed paganism and Christianity to such an extent and they denied the resurrection of Jesus according to 1 Corinthians 15 now if I were writing to them I'd have maxed out on those issues and then sort of PS and by the way you're divided and that's awful but no the things are put together to show that these are all serious sins he goes on verse 8 and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God now that opens up a, a theme that is very relevant to the breaking of bread that to be given a cup of wine to drink is actually a double symbol you know Babylon is given a cup of wine to drink a cup of the Lord's condemnation and fury and yet there is such a thing as Paul says as the cup of blessing which we bless and he talks uh, he alludes to that I think in 1 Corinthians 11:29, where he says that when we break bread we can drink to our condemnation or we can drink the cup of blessing and so then that's the great thing I think about the, the structure of the breaking of bread that we come there to a T-junction out of which there is no third way we are either drinking that cup to our eternal blessing or to our eternal condemnation and thank God that he set that up for us now of course we can't flunk it by saying <clears throat> okay if it's that serious I, I, I won't do it um, that's the same with the Passover and on the Jewish feast the man who will not do this should be cut off from among my people so nobody could flunk it 
And it's good that that is the, the case, that we are brought to a situation whereby we realize and perceive that there is no third way, that as we hold that cup in our hand, we know that this is actually to our blessing, the cup of blessing which we bless, or drinking to our condemnation. And of course, when we're given the starkness of the choice, the starkness of the contrast, well, what way are we going to go? Unfortunately, in all sorts of ways, we try to dilute the, the starkness of the choice. When ultimately, as Proverbs makes very clear, there are only two ways before us. And when you look at it like that, well, what are you going to choose? You're going to choose God's way, surely. And so the breaking of bread is designed to use that double symbol, that is the cup of wine, to make us perceive that. So, concluding then verse 11, God says, I raised up your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. But the Nazarite vow was completely voluntary. That's when a, a young man said that he chose to, for example, not cut his hair, not drink wine, etc., to be holy unto the Lord. And yet, it says here that God raised up young men for Nazarites. Now, you've got straight away the interplay between free will and God raising people up. And I, there, there's no ultimately easy explanation of that. All I would say is that when Paul starts talking about free will versus predestination in Romans, he, he does so in a context. He doesn't... Uh, just turn over a, a page and, and think, right, well, now I'm going to start talking about free will versus predestination, and here we go. His context there is about grace. And he's saying, why you're saved by grace and not by any works of the law is because there is an element of predestination in human life. If it was just pure free will, then it would be salvation by works. Now, this is so humbling if we really perceive it. But all that we are spiritually is not purely a result of our sort of right choices. Of course, they are a factor. But there is also God's hand, God's raising of us up. Those of us who came to the Lord because of faithful parents teaching us from our babyhood God's ways, I think we particularly must recognize this, that this is of grace that we were born into such a family. We were raised up in that sense. But you gave, verse 12, the Nazarites wine to drink. Now they weren't allowed to drink wine. Why do they do that? I think it's because we all have a, an uneasiness when we are in the presence of someone more spiritual than ourselves, or we can be like that. And we, subconsciously I'm sure, want to bring that person down to our level. I remember sitting in a small coupe, that is a, a part of a, a railway wagon, going across Siberia. And we were four men in this, in this very small, like, I don't know, three square meters uh, compartment, maybe four square meters uh, compartment. Uh, for a long time. And these guys started drinking, and I don't drink, and I didn't. Uh, drink with them and as the journey went on the the tension and the pressure in those four square meters was just awful and i know that if i had said okay yeah i'll have a hundred grams that they were drinking uh, vodka i'll take a hundred grams it would have been like a little pinprick that burst the bubble of pressure 
we sort of are happier if someone is brought down to our level. And this is a terrible thing. And it can happen in ecclesial life. It can happen in all our spheres of human relationships. Now, sin is, uh, th this particular sin is picked out here by God. We should really understand, therefore, that sin is particularly in relation to damaging others. And in fact, I don't think it's true that sin can be committed without any harm to others. It's common these days for people to say, well, I do nobody else any harm. What I think in my heart, what I do privately is my business, not yours. But in fact, it doesn't stop there because what we do privately, and this is the whole burden of the Sermon on the Mount, what we do think, imagine, fantasize about privately ultimately has issue. It ultimately comes to term at some point in our lives, in our attitudes to others. And so sin is sin in some ways, not simply because God drew a line and we crossed it. It's because it damages others. It takes the glory away from, from God's name. And so the chapter winds up describing the fate of the rejected. Verse 14, the flight shall perish from the swift. In other words, they'll want to run away but won't be able to. Verse 16, some will flee away naked in that day, says the Lord. But verse 14 says they won't be able to. They'll want to, but they, they won't be able to. And this fits in with uh, a repeated sort of theme in the Bible teaching about condemnation, that those rejected by divine judgment will have no place to run. They'll, they'll want to slink away from him, but also they will not want to. We read in the New Testament about the final judgment that the rejected will be ashamed from before him at his coming. That is that they will slink away in rejection and yet also they will not want to go back to the world. They will be condemned with the world as Paul says but they will not want to go back to the world. So they'll, they'll want to flee from, from their sense of, of rejection and yet there's no place to run. It'll be an awful feeling. They shall want to flee away, 16, naked in that day. They will be naked. And that connects with Revelation 16, that the rejected shall walk naked, and the rest of us will see their shame. There will be this terrible revelation of who the rejected really are. In fact, all of us. We shall be made manifest, Paul says, in that day. We shall be revealed for who we are. And if ultimately who I am is to be intimately known to you and who you are will become absolutely openly revealed then what is the point of hypocrisy in this life what is the point of acting in a certain way trying to, to throw something over our brethren's eyes when for the billions and zillions of years if you wish to look at it that way of eternity we'll all see each other for who we are anyway so then Paul says that knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, and he's talking about condemnation, we therefore persuade men. So this is not a negative thing. The fact that the Bible talks a lot about condemnation it is not there to, to scare the life out of us and to, to make us buck our ideas up and, uh, and be a bit more spiritual. Not at all. It is, I think, to give us some depth in understanding the wonder of our salvation. When Paul says we have been saved from wrath 
through him. You need to understand what that wrath is. That this awful picture of condemnation, the passage in Ezekiel that talks about those rejected by God being like a woman trying to pluck off her own breasts, is an awful picture, but it's there to show us the the extent of self-hatred and gnashing of teeth, that is, anger against oneself, which there will be amongst the rejected. And we need to realize that, that there is going to come a day of judgment at which not everyone's going to make it, at which there will be condemnation. And the picture of that condemnation is brought before us in Scripture. Why? I think to, to make us appreciate what it means that we have been saved. You think of those wonderful verses there in Romans 8 and, and other teaching of Paul where he says that we have been saved from wrath. We, we, have, we will not pass into condemnation because the judge is the Lord Jesus. The advocate, our advocate, is the Lord Jesus. There is none to accuse us now in Christ. This language all out of the courtroom that we, as it were, have the same person as our advocate, our defense, our judge, and that he will not allow any accusation against us. It's almost too good to be true that we will be saved because of the, the blood of the Lord Jesus and because of our connection with him, because we are in him and he is on our side. But the wonder of that is only perceived insofar as we recognize that there will be condemnation, that there is such a thing as this awful divine rejection this shut door in the face of the foolish virgins. I never knew you. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, but I, I didn't know you. That's going to happen. Some poor people will go through that awful situation, but we have been saved from that. And so this is what gives some focus and meaning, I think, to the breaking of bread, that here we have in this cup a double symbol either of our condemnation or of our eternal blessing and we believe that we are in Christ and that therefore and thereby we are saved from wrath in him or through him because we are in him because we are brethren sisters in him we will be saved that is the repeated assurance of the New Testament a couple of times on every page I perceive this encouragement that we will be there that we will be saved but the wonder of that, as I say, is brought out by seeing what we are saved from. And again, I think this highlights the wonderful achievement of the Lord Jesus, that when he could finally breathe his last and say, it is finished, so much had been accomplished, and one breathes almost a sigh of relief. Those of us who are in Christ, uh, when we come to the end of that crucifixion record and, and read the resurrection record that follows it, knowing that our salvation from all our sin, weakness and dysfunction our salvation from condemnation which is quite right for sinners that that has been removed and that we truly can live with joy with conviction, with principle to live for with a road in which we're being led towards his kingdom thank you